The reading of the Scriptures from Isaiah 66, verses 15 to 19. So uh, let us hear the Word of God proclaimed among us uh, with faith uh, and with joy that we have uh, this Word in Scripture for us. Isaiah chapter 66. For behold, the Lord will come in fire, and His chariots like the whirlwind, to render His anger and fury, and His rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire will the Lord enter into judgment, and by His sword with all flesh, and those slain by the Lord shall be many. Those who sanctify and purify themselves to go into the gardens, following one in the midst, eating pig's flesh, and the abomination and my shall come to an end together, declares the Lord. For I know their works and their thoughts, and the time is coming to gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and see my glory. And I will set a sign among them, and from them I will send survivors to the nations, to Tarshish, Pool, and Lud, who draw the bow, to Tubal and Javan, to the coastlands far away, that have not heard my fame or seen my glory, and they shall declare my glory among the nations. Well, there is in the uh, words of the prophet Isaiah, uh, in this, uh, the last uh, chapter, a word that we do not deal with uh, very often in the church today, uh, namely uh, uh, the word apostasy. Uh, I don't know why, perhaps uh, because it implies an absolute standard. We don't think in those terms today, just simply uh, uh, part of our world uh, culture that we're, uh, we live in a world in which everything is relative, is defined by the group, if you will. Uh, the other reason I don't think we think in the terms of words like apostasy is because it implies uh, the ferocity of the justice of God, certainly that Isaiah speaks to in our text this morning, uh, ferocity of justice for violating his standards. So uh, this morning, uh, Isaiah will deal with apostates by describing two end states. Apostasy affects two end states. Uh, one is, uh, of course, uh, uh, not uh, so well uh, in light of what was going to happen to the apostates, but something that speaks to the grace of God, as the Scriptures uh, always does when it speaks of judgment, a reminder that God is a God of grace. Uh, so uh, in the first movement of the text, verses 15 to the first part of verse 18, apostates will be judged. And out of that judgment will come a righteous remnant that will emerge to witness to the glory of God, latter part of verse 18 uh, down through verse 19. So again, two end states. Judgment, uh, and again, the emergence of a remnant that will declare the majesty of uh, the glory of God, the message that there is hope, that there is light, uh, that there is peace, that there is joy, that there is grace. Uh, to this remnant. Well, let's begin with the word apostasy. I'm not going to spend a great deal of time defining it other than the fact that it is a sin that is unique to the covenant community. The wicked don't engage in apostasy. They don't turn away from the truth because they don't believe in the truth anyway. 
It is a sin within the covenant community, within the covenant community in the Old Testament of the nation of Israel, and of course within the covenant community today in, in sadly saying, the church. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 8, uh, verse 5, uh, is something of a reference uh, to this uh, sin. Uh, why then has this people turned away? Jerusalem in continual apostasy. They hold fast to deceit. They refuse to return. Those same words could be written of many churches today. I trust not all. In fact, I know not all because of the doctrine of a righteous remnant. Uh, but they hold fast to deceit. They love deceit. They proclaim deceit. Uh, and of course, they would laugh at our position. Uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 3, the Apostle Paul speaks of a falling away within the church, that the church will fall away from the faith. Of course, not every church, uh, because of the grace of God in preserving a remnant that holds fast uh, to the truth and to His name. Uh, oftentimes, apostasy is captured in the life of the present-day church in a denial of supernaturalism. There's no virgin birth. I mean, that's the supernatural. Who could believe in such a thing? Well, I do. We do at Grace Bible Church. A denial of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Who could believe in such a thing? A man rising from the dead? Well, I believe that. We believe that, that the God-man conquered the grave, uh, rose from the dead. But again, many within the professing Christian community today reject supernaturalism. In our context, in the words of the prophet Isaiah, Apostasy is defined, as we might expect, in the well-worn term of idolatry. Worshiping things, uh, rocks, uh, trees, uh, everything and anything except the one true God. Uh, the antonym to apostasy is orthodoxy. Uh, what is orthodoxy? Well, I'm not going to spend much time on that today. Simply repair uh, to something of a common word in American culture today, and that is uh, the orthodontist. I know you love going to your orthodontist. Uh, the orthodontist is oftentimes reviled because he straightens that which is crooked. Apostasy is that which is crooked within the covenant community. Preachers that hold to the truth straighten Crooked doctrine. We don't hear a lot about that today, uh, but that is uh, the, uh, the point, if you will, of the preacher of the truth. He straightens that which is crooked. Uh, many things are crooked within the American church. Uh, I see, interestingly enough, on uh, television ads, uh, uh, many, many companies that provide... Uh, devices to straighten your crooked teeth. I don't think I've ever seen an ad of doctrinal truth that straightens that which is crooked within the American church, namely a love of deceit. But perhaps, who knows, someday we will. But nonetheless, uh, uh, Isaiah gives us an ad that God will preserve a righteous remnant who will not turn to the crooked uh, ways of the unorthodox. 
Let's begin uh, with the first end state of uh, the apostates, and that is uh, they will be judged. Uh, that is little spoken of today. We don't think in terms of uh, coming judgment. Uh, the righteousness of God vented in the ferocity of his wrath against error within the covenant community, but Isaiah speaks exactly to that end. Uh, verse 15 is really uh, the first explanation for the final phrase of the 14th verse. Now look at your text, Isaiah 66, verse 14, and the final phrase, but he shall be indignant towards his enemies. And then Isaiah offers an explanation uh, that comes to us as an eschatological warning. Uh, verse 15, for behold, he's explaining verse 14, for behold, the Lord will come with fire, his chariots like a whirlwind. Uh, the, uh, the eschatological warning is that the Lord will come in fire, uh, effecting total destruction against his enemies. Uh, again, we don't think in those terms. We're relativists today in the American culture. We don't believe in absolute truth. We don't believe in coming judgment. We think everything is okay. But Isaiah is correcting that error like a good orthodontist would correct teeth that are crooked. Now, Isaiah is a true prophet of God, so he's going to uh, bring that correction uh, he has spoken of this truth already, uh, coming fire, Isaiah chapter 29 and verse 6. But let's turn to a New Testament counterpart. If you have your New Testament, I trust you do. A book of Hebrews chapter 12 and verses 28 and 29. Uh, this is uh, contextually a book that is written uh, to a covenant community that is thinking about leaving their faith in Jesus Christ to their old religion of Judaism, uh, which has, uh, again, been surpassed by the coming of Christ, and therefore they are leaving what they have found to the old. Uh, that is an illustration of apostasy. Uh, and so in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 28 and 29, the author writes, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, the world will be shaken, the church, the believes in truth, will not, shall not, cannot be shaken. And therefore let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. Why should we do that? The author tells us in verse 29, for our God is a consuming fire. We have read a great deal in the newspaper and perhaps seen on the television about these terrible fires in California. Uh, to use a well-worn phrase, you haven't seen anything yet uh, when God invades in a consuming fire. Uh, that text is a uh, quotation from Deuteronomy chapter uh, 4 and uh, verse 23. So this author, this New Testament author, is citing the Old Testament to prove his point. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 4, uh, verse 23 and following. So watch yourselves. Be careful, uh, lest you forget the covenant that the Lord your God, which he made with you, and make for yourself a graven image in the form of anything against which the Lord your God has commanded you. But why should you be careful about making yourself an idol? 
Verse 24, For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. It's a good reminder for all of us. We sometimes love other things too much at the expense of our faith. We need to recover well-worn words that our God is a jealous God. He expects our total loyalty. He does not deal kindly with disloyalty. That we are to worship the one and only true God of Scripture and His truth and His covenant and reject everything else. Why? Because God is a consuming fire and one day He will invade. And with respect uh, to those who suffered the tragedy of the fires in California or that oftentimes break out in Oklahoma with our violent winds, you haven't seen anything yet. A warning to remain steadfast and true to God. Uh, the second explanation of Isaiah 66, 14 is that God's chariots will come like a whirlwind. It's a military metaphor speaking to invasion. Uh, reference again, figuratively speaking, of chariots because the prophet Isaiah is using the language of the military of his day. We were writing this text today, we might think of tanks, armored forces moving rapidly, uh, like the famous word that came out of uh, World War II, blitz. The German word for blitz is the word for lightning, and then the German word for war, krieg, lightning war, that the German uh, army had learned to invade quickly, to mass their forces at a single decisive point, to break the lines and then exploit it in terrible speed and ferocity. Uh, but the people of Poland, Czechoslovakia, and all Western Europe haven't seen anything like it will be when God comes in lightning war. Sudden, unexpected, and unprecedented speed. The scriptures, of course, uh, use this metaphor everywhere. Uh, let, me, let me simply turn to one because of time. Uh, Proverbs uh, chapter 10 uh, in verse uh, 25. When the whirlwind passes, the wicked is no more. But the righteous has an everlasting foundation. Great reminder. Two different ends. The wicked will be gone forever, uh, but the righteous will abide forever. Uh, the simile in our text of Isaiah 66, like the whirlwind, has the invasion as a ferocious storm. Uh, oftentimes uh, in Oklahoma, because of uh, ferocious storms that we face, uh, we have uh, 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 meteorologists that uh, speak to us about tomorrow and coming storms and their forecast. Uh, well, if you will, Isaiah is like a weatherman forecasting the greatest storm of all time. Uh, it's interesting to me that oftentimes in our culture, people don't pay any heed to storms. Uh, oftentimes, the weathermen are correct. Uh, they speak to rising floodwaters, and people say, I'm going to ride it out. Some of them make it. Many don't. We don't like the inconvenience of having to gather up our belongings and to leave. But the weathermen are oftentimes correct. Uh, and many 
do not make it, particularly when it speaks to violent floodwaters. Well, again, you ain't seen nothing yet. The coming of the stormwaters of God in total, absolute destruction. Uh, the final explanation to Isaiah 6, 66, verse 14, uh, is in uh, the 16th verse, for the Lord will execute judgment by fire. This is the third reference to fire. The repetition is to remind us that one of the most destructive forces is a fire driven by raging winds. But then another metaphor, and by his sword on all flesh, and no slain by the Lord will be many. Uh, the sword engages the Lord as a great and mighty warrior. Uh, something, if you will, is a reminder in Exodus chapter 15, verse 3, the song of Moses. He is singing to the glory of God in destroying the forces of Pharaoh. And he says to us that the Lord is a mighty warrior. He will come and destroy. Uh, the armies of Pharaoh destroyed uh, by the raging waters of the sea. Uh, but Isaiah has already mentioned this theme to us. Uh, turn with me to chapter 42, uh, a reference to the servant of the Lord. Uh, he comes lowly and humble. Uh, he comes to save, and save he does. He comes to establish his word, and that word will be established, but he comes to do something else. Isaiah chapter 42, the 13th verse. Even from eternity, I am he, and there is none who can deliver out of my hand. I act, and who can reverse it? Rhetorical question. Who can reverse the mighty acts of the judgment of the servant of the Lord? Well, you know the answer. No one. No one can, no one will, and more emphatically, no one does. Uh, these uh, figures convey catastrophic defeat and utter destruction. Well, of course, there are many fulfillments of these texts in the Scriptures, both old and new. Uh, the last great final is uh, uh, the second coming of the Lord. Uh, the Apostle Paul writes of this act of uh, the final judgment of God, 2 Thessalonians uh, chapter 1, in verses 7 and 8. It's only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is a message, it's a warning, it's a meteorological reality that the greatest of all storms is yet to come, but when it comes, it will come in lightning speed and destroy everything that is opposed to it, and God will, of course, rescue his church. If you're not a Christian, the word of God is telling you what your end state is. Uh, namely, you will be consumed and destroyed. Uh, you will slip and fall forever. Well, the... Uh, Prophet Isaiah does something uh, that he should do in our text. He defines, in the context of uh, errant Israel, what apostasy is. Uh, it is so terrible, the judgment that comes upon it, 
that we have a definition to bring clarity as to who the apostates are. The first part of verse 17. Those who sanctify and purify themselves to go to the gardens, following one in the center who eats swine's flesh, detestable things, and mice, they shall come to an end altogether, declares the Lord. Uh, it's interesting that both of the words that begin this text, the word to sanctify and to purify, are legitimate aspects of true faith. As a reminder that apostasy rejects what is legitimate for that which is self-defined. Uh, the first word is the idea of setting apart for sacred use in the service of God. To sanctify. If you are a Christian, if you believed in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are a priest of God. He has set you apart for His service. And regardless of your vocation in life, butcher, baker, candlestick maker, you are a priest and that is how you serve God to His glory. And you should be the best at what you do because you serve the best of all time in eternity. As a baker, you render your service for the glory of God. That one of the great tragedies of our American culture is nothing is significant anymore except for the church and the priests of God and everything that they do. That we do to the glory of God for His majesty, for His kingdom, to speak to His glory. The second word, purity, is a term of ritual purity conveying moral purity. There was a ritual aspect in the Old Testament, purity, but convey a changed heart. And both are constituent parts of true worship. More critically, they are acts and products of divine grace. Only God can sanctify. Only God can purify. Let's look at one reminder of this. One among thousands. Ezekiel chapter 36 and verse 25. And I want to point out something that's very critical in this text, and namely that is the first person singular pronoun that is so significant. Ezekiel 36, verse 25, then I, to reference to God, I, God is going to do something, then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean. And I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all of your idols that Israel has a terrible problem, but God in His grace will fix it. But who does the fixing? God does. He sprinkles the clean water, He purifies, He cleanses His righteous remnant. Uh, if you're not a Christian, that should be your appeal to God. God, make me clean. Because I'm unholy. Because I'm an idolater. And only you can make me clean. It's the appeal uh, to the hope of... Uh, the majesty that God is a God of judgment, but He's also something else. He's a God of grace, uh, but only He can cleanse. Uh, the error here, again, uh, that is so pronounced is uh, they do it to themselves. What a great definition of religion. What a great definition of apostasy. That many churches say, well, God, you have your way of cleansing. You have your way of sanctifying, but we have a better way. That's apostasy, pure and simple. It needs to be rejected. It needs to be fled from because it simply is awaiting the judgment of God. Remember in the army, 
I was always terrified of going to the grenade range because you pull a pin, it's like you have five seconds. You don't pull the pin on the grenade and release the spoon and look at it and say, my, what a, what a beautiful sphere. Let me study this sphere. Let me ponder it. Let me make a drawing to it. No, by that time you're dead. And that is the point that, that if you're not a Christian, uh, you live uh, holding in uh, both of your hands a terrible ticking time bomb. I don't know when it will go off, but God does. Uh, it's a reminder that uh, God sanctifies, God purifies. You do not, you cannot, and furthermore, you will not do it to yourself. It is solely and entirely a divine act of the grace of God. Notice the prophet Ezekiel. I, I will sprinkle clean water on you. I will cleanse you from all of your filthiness. And filthy we are. And cleansing is what God does. Beautiful act of the grace and the mercy of God. Beautiful picture of this uh, in my own mind in uh, the prophet Zechariah, chapter 3. If you want to see a picture of what this means, uh, Zechariah chapter 3, the context is of Joshua, the high priest. Now, typically in our culture, in the Christian church in our day, the priest in the church is uh, typically supposed to be a pretty clean guy or lady, if you will, uh, in many churches. Uh, they are simply the pinnacle. There are some churches that has, uh, if you will, one great patriarch. And uh, maybe he's the cleanest of all, I don't know. Uh, but one who perhaps is defined as the vicar of Christ upon the earth. By the way, in my own theology, the vicar of Christ upon the earth is the Holy Spirit, because only he is holy in all of his righteousness and beauty and majesty. But Joshua, the high priest, has a problem. Let's look at it. Joshua chapter 3 and verse 3, Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and standing before the angel. In other words, he is in serious trouble but because he, he is not properly clothed. But look at the grace of God. And he spoke and said to those, the angel is speaking, the angel of the Lord speaks and said to those who are standing before him saying, remove the filthy garments from him. And again, he said to him, see, I've taken away your iniquity away from you and I will clothe you with festal robes. A beautiful expression of the great Protestant doctrine of justification. That your clothes are dirty and filthy. You have no right to be in God's presence. You cannot enter in presence. So what does he do? Our great high priest takes away your dirty and filthy garments and clothes you with his own, rendering you, legally speaking, not guilty and just before a holy God. That the only way a wicked sinner can stand in the presence of God is if Jesus Christ clothe him with festal robes. So that only he can cleanse and only he can purify. The error here in Isaiah 66 is that the apostates do it to themselves, absent grace. We are, we're long in the tooth. Well, God, you have your way. But we have a better way. This is 2018. And your words are anachronistic. Now, I will tell you, be very careful of people who speak in those terms. Because the word is not an anachronism. It is the timeless and eternal truth 
of the living and holy God. In the cultists, the way to God was prescribed, but they make their own rules and cleanse themselves. Uh, and so they reject divine revelation or the prescriptions of God uh, for pseudo-worship. And that is, again, very popular in the American church. It's worship, but it has a defining adjective. It's pseudo-worship or false worship that God rejects. Uh, God makes the rules. God defines the end state. Uh, you go any other path, and there are thousands that you're in serious way. Furthermore, Isaiah says, they go to the gardens. It is a reference, of course, to idolatry, uh, where uh, idols were worshipped. It's very interesting that this phrase uh, is uh, spoken of in Isaiah chapter 1. So isn't it interesting? Isaiah chapter 1, they're described as idolaters, and in the final chapter of his prophecy, Isaiah chapter 66, they're doing the very same thing still. They have rejected the warnings of God. They pay them no heed. And furthermore, they reject the great promise of the servant's son who alone can cleanse and purify and make us able to stand in the presence of eternal glory. Isaiah 1, Isaiah 66, and all along the way, they have rejected God. It's a terrible, terrible path to take. Are you engaging in your idolatry still? Are you still going to the haunts of apostasy and hearing false teachers? Isaiah is saying, yes, they are doing it still. Isaiah chapter 65, if you will, uh, verses 3 and 4. A people who continually provoke me to my face, offering sacrifices in gardens and burning incense on bricks, who sit among the graves and spend the night in secret places, who eat swine's flesh and the broth of unclean meat is in their pots. Idols still, apostasy still, false teaching still, defining your own way to God, uh, saying to God, you have your provision, I can make my own, thank you very much. Their way is wrong and their place is wrong. Uh, furthermore, they have their own ritual. Uh, we are a very ritualistic culture, uh, Isaiah says, following one in the center and uh, their own law, eating foods in violation of uh, the dietary laws of the Old Testament, again, that are not applicable to the church today, uh, except for maybe one or two. <laughs> he says, uh, why, do you do, why do you eat mice? Mice, amazing. Uh, I was watching uh, uh, one of these uh, shows on television of survivors, uh, the men and women were so hungry they could find very little food, but they could find mice. And eat mice they did. Mice, really? Really? In light of the provision of the body and blood of Jesus Christ that we're to eat and to drink for our salvation, you go to mice, it's almost as if it's throwing the grace of God in its face. I have this grand banquet Grandest of all banquets that it ever will be, the marriage feast of the Lamb. 
and you eat mouse and mice. The word in the Old Testament is, uh, speaks to a broad range of uh, small animals. Uh, but to me, the mouse is the epitome of the lowest of them all. What a feast is a mouse? Very little. But that is the way of idolatry. Uh, we think it's a grand provision, a grand banquet, when God has the best of all, but we turn away uh, from it to, to feast upon mice, the mice of the world. Think of it. The folly of man. One of the great judgments pronounced by the prophet Isaiah of the idolater, he says, uh, you eat, but you're never filled. You drink, but your th thirst is never quenched. You pursue, but you never find the right way. You never get enough, never satisfied. What a great description of American culture. And we make our own rules absent historic practice and orthodoxy. One of my favorite business commentators, uh, one of the programs, television, uh, lost his son in the opioid uh, epidemic, a terrible epidemic, but he gave a commentary. And so what's interesting about the loss of my son it was that when a drug dealer has one of his clients die, people rush to him to buy his product because they know they know it's strong. Are you kidding me? A young man has just lost his life, and people flock to his dealer because he sells the strong stuff? My friend, it's the folly of our culture. We are long in the tooth and apostasy and rejecting the way of God. We're feasting on mice when he has given to us the Lord Jesus Christ in all of his glory. Reject the mice of this world. Turn to the Savior if you're not a Christian. Uh, but they shall, in the words of the Apostle Paul, 2 Timothy chapter 4, they turn away from truth. He's speaking to the church. He's telling orthodontists, if you will, in the church, preach the word for the time will come when they will turn away from truth and they will be turned to myth, to myth. That's where we are, many American churches today. Now, Psalm 73, verses 17 to 19. Now, the psalmist is troubled about the wicked. He's so troubled, he's thinking about leaving the faith. And then he goes to church, and the preacher preaches a sermon on their end, and that corrects his folly, that they shall slip into utter destruction. Uh, that's the negative. Let's re remind ourselves of uh, the positive. If you're not a Christian, Ecclesiastes, final chapter, final two verses, 13 and 14, the conclusion. When all that's been heard is, fear God and keep His commandments because this applies to every person. Because God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or bad. So fear God and keep His commandments. Hold fast to Jesus Christ, knowing that He is holding fast to you in His grace. So it's the judgment of God, the warning of uh, the greatest invasion force of all time. Let's turn... Uh, to the gospel, the promise of grace, uh, beginning uh, Isaiah 66, uh, verse 18. The time is coming together, all nations and tongues, 
and they shall come and see my glory. The promise that God's going to act in grace. He will also act in judgment, but the church is going to act in grace. The second instate that follows God's rejection of apostasy is that God will raise up a purified remnant to witness to him. That God will purge a witness as a sign. Notice the text, verse 19. I will set a sign among them and send survivors from them to all the nations. Who are the survivors? Again, from within the covenant community. Some will survive uh, the terrible judgments and God will preserve them and send them to the nations to claim the gospel. Uh, the illustrations of this in my own mind find fulfillment in the New Testament. Jesus is the new Israel. He will come and proclaim the gospel to Jews and then send Jews, survivors, to the nations who are Gentiles. The coming of the Spirit at Pentecost, God saving Jews who will take the message of the gospel to Gentiles. Uh, Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 13, he's going to cut the tree of the nation down, but preserve a remnant, a righteous seed. Uh, another illustration of this is the Apostle Paul. Paul was a Jew who takes the gospel to the Gentiles. And this remnant goes to gather the Gentiles. Uh, throughout the Old Testament, the saving of Gentiles is foretold. Of course, it comes fulfillment, the book of Acts, the Great Commission, go to the nations, the remnants to go to the nations, and the worldwide preaching of the gospel is a fulfillment of the prophet. Uh, but what, what do they preach? Uh, we know the content of the apostates. What's the content of the righteous remnant? Uh, Isaiah uh, leaves uh, us with this. Uh, they will go and they will preach, uh, God says, my fame and my glory. And they will declare my glory among the nations. Uh, the possessive pronoun is essential. My. Not your glory. But the glory of God. There is much to glory in this world that is attractive. It does not hold a righteous remnant. Uh, I think uh, of those who win uh, Olympic medals. It's chump change compared to the glory of God. Uh, I think of those who gain political fame and great wealth in our country. So be it. It's chump change. Don't give your heart to it. Don't be attracted by it. Uh, I think of those who are written in one of my favorite magazines, uh, Forbes. Uh, once a year, they write an article entitled Forbes 400, the 400 richest men and women in the world or in America. Must be nice. Who cares? It will not last. In a moment, they will slip if they know not the Lord Jesus Christ. That all of these things are fading glory. Only the glory of God will stand the test of time and will be forever. It does not hold the remnant and neither should it hold us. Uh, they pursue and desire that which is the pinnacle of glory to which everything is subservient and is but a pale and passing shadow. Uh, the Apostle Paul, Philippians chapter 3, he forgets what is behind in reaching forward to what lies ahead. What lies ahead for the Apostle Paul? The upward call of God in Jesus Christ. 
It should dominate your thoughts. Morning to evening and even throughout the night seasons. The upward call of God in Jesus Christ. Furthermore, the text clearly defines the content of their message. My fame, my glory, verse 19. The peculiarity of the message is the majesty of God. The word glory is used three times in this one verse. It vacates all other contents. It excludes falsehood and every competitor. There is a singularity to our message that obviates the inclusion of worldly disciplines that have become a part of our message in the church today, in the social gospel and pop psychology that centers our message upon man. We must do otherwise and center our message upon the glory of God. It is the only thing that will attract the lost. The glory of God, the greatest of all. Pop psychology, social gospel attracts apostates. The glory of God attracts the righteous remnant. The beauty of God in all of his grandeur and splendor, it's a picture of God that's so lovely, it turns our attention to him and to him alone. And the remnant forsakes all others for him alone. For our witness to have the content of the fame and the glory of the only God, because there is but one. Well, we come uh, this morning as the uh, first Sunday of uh, the new month uh, to a feast. Not of the creepy and crawly things of the world. Uh, that's the meal of apostates. We come to the greatest of all, uh, the feast of the Lord's table. The feast upon, by faith, the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, the Lord's table has as its uh, background uh, the Passover meal, uh, where the head of every household was to slaughter the Passover lamb and mark uh, his doorpost lintel with the blood of the lamb. And what is the result of that? The angel of death passes over the blood that marks that household. It is a gospel in graphic, visible form. If you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, your life is marked by the blood of the Lamb, and the angel of death cannot come near you, but must pass over. Uh, the importance of the Lord's table is captured in the reality there is, there is a sign uh, in this sacrament. But it is not the sign that we give attention to. Uh, it is a physical event presented to the senses, but we go beyond that to apprehend by faith as to what it means. And the table signifies the benefits of the new covenant, including our spiritual nourishment and growth in grace. I'd like to return uh, to uh, the reality as to who is invited to the Lord's table. It's important for Grace Bible Church because we believe in an open communion. By open, it's open to any who name the name of Jesus Christ, who have believed and hoped in Him and Him alone. In the Heidelberg Catechism, uh, one of the great catechisms of the Reformed faith, uh, there is another marker that's important to us 
in question 81 begins, who are to come to the Lord's table? If this answer applies to you, you are welcome. You are invited and encouraged to come. Listen to the answer. Those who are displeased with themselves because of their sins, but who nevertheless trust that their sins are pardoned and that their continuing weakness is covered by the suffering and the death of Christ. And who also desire more and more to strengthen their faith and to lead a better life. What a great answer as to who can come at Grace Bible Church on this lovely Lord's Day to partake of the sacrament of the Lord's table. But that's only a partial answer to question 81. Let's look at a warning. Hypocrites and those who are unrepentant, however, eat and drink judgment to themselves and therefore should not eat and drink because they are eating and drinking judgment. And so that defines our open communion. You are, divide, you are invited to come. There is, of course, in our faith, uh, much uh, more so than the uh, catechism statements, the warrant of Scripture. Uh, John chapter 6 is one such warrant, verses 53 uh, to 58, definitive as to what we are to be about this morning by faith in what it signifies. Jesus therefore said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. So beyond the physical testimony to the senses, the flesh and blood of Jesus Christ, our Savior. And so that is why we come this morning, to remember him, to fellowship with him as the host of the table. But more importantly, by faith, to apprehend what his flesh and blood mean to us as true believers. As I uh, break the bread, and as the bread is passed, I encourage you to engage in a moment of silent prayer uh, by which if you need to confess sin because you do not wish to partake uh, of the table as one who is defined as unrepentant, then that is something that you can be about. Uh, but think about the judgment and wrath that you deserved, rightfully deserved, that I deserved and rightfully deserved. But God was gracious and caused that wrath and judgment to fall upon the Lord Jesus Christ upon the cross. That we deserved it, but he made a provision, his beloved son, and he took his son in judgment and wrath instead of us. So at some point in your silent prayers, celebrate the grace of God. Revel in it. Rejoice in it. Because it is life as itself. You have escaped wrath and judgment because of your substitute, the Lord Jesus. Uh, please, as the bread is passed, hold it until which time all are served, and then we will eat and drink together, signifying the unity of this church in the saving flesh and blood 
of our only Savior, rejecting all others and holding fast to Him and Him alone. Let's prepare for the taking of bread.